Well, if you snuck in late, my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor here. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're in a series right now where we're teaching through the book of Acts, and uh, we're just going to see how long this takes us. And we got to verse 12 in chapter 1, and we saw something that we needed to stop and say, okay, let's answer some questions here before we move on. See, what had happened in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, is the ascension of Christ had just occurred, and the disciples had this moment with Jesus that then compelled them to joyful obedience, and so they found themselves back in Jerusalem, awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what we saw in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, is that the disciples found themselves in the right place with the right people doing the right practices, and this had positioned them for power. Now, when power goes out individually, uh, we usually call that transformation or sanctification is the more doctrinal term, uh, but it's us being changed. When power goes out corporately, we call that movement or revival, and we're interested in both here. And so we're pausing here and we're looking and asking, what is it, what is it to be the right place? with the right people, to be the right people, and to do the right practices. And it's taken us five weeks to get through the right place. And so over the last few weeks, what I've been doing is talking about what it means to be the right place. For some of you who are looking for a church, uh, those uh, sermons might be helpful as they would help you understand kind of who we want to be here at Redemption. But the right place is first a place of biblical truth, not of heresy. Secondly, it's a place that proclaims the true gospel, not many of the false gospels that are present in our modern world. And then thirdly, uh, it is a place then that is rooted in love. For if we have not love, then we are nothing. And and then last week, I talked about how all of that then must be encompassed in uh, the right structure, a godly structure, uh, the structure for the church as laid out in the scriptures. As we say it around here, this is God's church, and so it's his church, so it's his rules, or it's his ways, uh, as opposed to a worldly structure. Uh, said another way, we're a church, not a business. We're a church, not just any organization. And so uh, we are to operate as God would have us to operate as he laid out in his scriptures. Today then, what we're doing is really kind of like drawing a circle around the, the other four or maybe kind of like shading over it. Uh, and this is something that has to like cover everything that we've talked about. And that is to be a church that is under grace, not law. Under grace, not law. Now, this idea of grace versus law uh, is uh, maybe the most long-debated doctrine in all of uh, Christianity. We see it in Acts chapter 15, uh, and we see it in other places in the book of Acts, and it's the question of what is the Christian's relationship with the law? We are now under grace, but, but how does the Christian interact with the law. And so this question, again, it was found in Acts chapter 15. It was uh, maybe the, the first thing that could have potentially split the church. Uh, and then uh, we see it all throughout Christian history. And many of the early church historians, uh, church theologians, write about this relationship between the grace and the law. This then becomes very prevalent in the Reformation. Uh, and then even in the forming of our denominations to this day, what is the Christian's relationship with the law. Now, potentially the the most debated doctrine of all time is not something I can solve in a a single morning or a single sermon. But what I do hope this morning is that we can talk about this in such a way that will help free us to understand this concept better and then also to train us or to teach us on how to be a church that operates under grace, not the law, to properly understand that. And so that's our quest 
for this morning. Many of you are probably familiar with uh, the text in Romans that uh, talks about how now in Christ that we are dead to the law and we are now under grace. It says we are under grace, not under the law. And, and that idea of being dead to the law then is another part of this kind of doctrinal dispute. And what it says is we are dead. The old us is dead to the law. But there is a new us now that is under Christ. And being under Christ, we are now under grace. The whole book of Galatians uh, is, in essence, trying to address this issue in the church. How does the church operate? And what were the things that were confusing Christians at that day, that confused Christians to this day, on what it means to operate under grace? Now, historically speaking, there have been two distortions of Christians' relationship with the law. The first one is what we typically refer to, or we use this term, legalism. Legalism. And uh, this is a simplistic definition, but in essence, what legalism is, it is trying to earn my right standing with God, whether that's pre-salvation or post-salvation, through a series of efforts and works by adhering to the law, almost to put God in my favor. Like, God, you have to because I did. Pre-salvation, you have to let me in. Here's everything I've done. Post-salvation, I am growing now because of my works of righteousness. Or if I mess up and fall, I earn my right standing again by, uh, by doing all of the right things. Uh, a little bit of a, like an offshoot of legalism then uh, is uh, I also then um, prove that I am in my faith, that I'm a real Christian because I live up to all of these standards typically referred to as legalism. Now, there's another uh, way that Christians have abused the law as well, and it's called antinomianism. And what antinomianism is, basically says, okay, so I am in Christ, I'm under grace, not under the law, and so the law then means nothing. And, and so I can do whatever I want because I am free in Christ. And so uh, no one can tell me that I have to do this or I have to do that. And, uh, and I don't have to look at any part uh, of the law and see that that is relevant to this day. I can do whatever I want. And what that is, is uh, it, it's just misunderstanding of what it means to be free in Christ. See, there's another text that we are totally free in Christ. But you know what it also says? That we're enslaved to Christ. So what does that mean? How do we have freedom and enslavement to Christ all at the same time? And so the, the answer to legalism is not do whatever you want. There's a better answer. It's the gospel. And so this morning, I want to try to help us understand what it means to be under grace, not under the law. And as we do that, we're going to look at it through three lenses. The first is, what does it look like to be under grace, not under the law, um, in, in the process of my salvation? And then what does it look like to be under grace, not under the law, in the process of my sanctification or in my growing up in Christ, my maturing in Christ, right? Being more rooted in Jesus. And then thirdly, what does it look like to be rooted in grace, not the law, as it relates to our relationships one to another and the relationships uh, of the church, the kind of the ethos or the culture that we have here as a church? What does it mean to be under grace, not under the law in all three of those things? So we'll start with 
the beginning, the very beginning. Uh, and, and some of us have fallen probably into this first trap, the legalistic trap uh, of our salvation process and, and have thought in our minds or in our hearts um, that the process of our salvation uh, is rooted in the good things that we do. And maybe on the outside, we would say, no, 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 I, don't, I know I'm saved by grace, but really what is going on underneath is we have created a system that justifies us before God that says something to the effect of, I have grown up in this. I said a few certain words. I'm a pretty good person. I'm consistent in church. I um, got baptized as a kid. I've done these things. And because of that, then I've kind of earned my way into my salvation. And whether we would call it a workspace justification or not, it really is underneath because in our heads, what we believe is because I did all of these things, now I'm okay. Now I am in Christ. I've stepped in to my salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I've preached often through Ephesians chapter 2, and in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, it it talks about how we were dead in our sin and our trespasses. And then you get to verse 4, and it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Before we can move on to points number 2 and points number 3, we have to be reminded again and again that the only way that we step into our salvation is not our behavior. It is not the good things that we have done. It is the fact that we are rescued by Jesus. His grace covers us and brings us into our salvation, not because we've done anything good, but because he is good and gracious and kind. That's our salvation. And that's the first weight lifted because some of us have lived under the weight of legalism and trying to earn our salvation. And so we've worked tirelessly over here and we have thought, I've finally been good enough. I've stepped in. No way to live. His grace hits, and it pushes us in. Whew, now I'm saved. Now listen, I want to use a metaphor today, okay? And I, and I could have probably taken this metaphor to a little more of an extreme, but it would have changed. It would, it would have, you know, well, I'll explain it here. So here's the metaphor. One, one metaphor says that when we step, I'm standing here because there's a line here, and this helps me. When we step into Christ, then, uh, one term says that we are clothed in Jesus, So this morning, I want you to imagine that when I talk about being clothed in Jesus, that there was just like a Snuggie covering me from head to toe, okay? And we'll be selling Redemption Snuggies afterwards out in the lobby, all right? They're $400. That's a joke. Okay, so you, you step in and you step into Christ and you're clothed now in Jesus. And, uh, uh, and the, the pre-salvation legalism is I have to earn the right to wear the Snuggie. And if I do enough of the right things, then there's like this magical moment. If I say the right words and I do the right things, that God shows up and he goes, you have been Snuggified. And you, you, it's placed on you. And you're like, wow, I earned I earned my Jesus snuggie. And now I get to walk around in my Jesus snuggie and I walk around with other people and I'm like, oh, you, you got yours too. Good job. Good job. Great job. Bunch of snuggie wearing Jesus freaks. <laughs> Colts have been started on less than this. Okay. Anyway. And, and so we walk around and we look and, and there's this idea of the other people wearing the snuggie. It's like, you, you did it too. You did it too. You did it too. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. Look at that person. They're so close. 
If they would just show up a couple more times. If they would just get over that one thing. If they would just stop saying those words, they could probably come in and earn their Snuggie too. And it creates a, a disconnect even in the community. Because then what we do is we begin to look at all of those out there when we have this legalistic mindset and we said, man, if you would just, you'd get yours too. It's the first breakdown of the community. And we have to be reminded then. Grace, covered. Then what happens is we get into this side. Now we're in our salvation and we're in Christ, the scriptures tell us. But then there's this issue of how do I grow up in Christ? How am I sanctified now? Uh, How does my spiritual maturity begin to happen? And what we do is we can fall into the trap of the Galatians. And what happened in in Galatia uh, is that Paul said, he accused them. He said, you came to Christ by grace, but now you're trying to do it on your own by works of the law and works of righteousness. In other words, you are acknowledge that you were saved by Jesus, but then when you got saved by Jesus, you looked and said, okay, now I'll take it from here. And uh, it was like, if I could use another metaphor, like a, like a ladder, like a spiritual ladder or a spiritual path that you were going down and you then began to create this legalistic idea that the way you move down the path from here to here is that every time you do something good, every time you do a work of righteousness, every time you are obedient, every time you don't get into sin, it's like you're taking steps along the way. Almost like uh, if this was like a karate thing and along the way, it's like your snuggy changes colors as you're moving and all of a sudden you have these people and they're wearing this color snuggie and you have those people and they're wearing that color snuggie because they earned their next snuggie. They fasted and they prayed or they give 10% or they do whatever. And so they earned a different color and it almost like creates this caste system along the way of different snuggie colored wearing people based upon what it is that they've been able to accomplish since they came to their salvation. And these people look back at those people and they're like, listen, this is all you got to do, A, uh, B, and C, and then you get to move on to the next rank, and then you get to move on to the next rank. But then what do we know happens? And by the way, some of us have, have fallen into this type of legalism playing out over here. And what we've done is we've created like a superiority in ourselves because we think I do these things. And so I'm moving along on the journey and I don't do those things. And so I'm not falling back, right? Uh, and those people, they're claiming Christ and they might might be a snuggie wear, but they're that color or they're over there on that path because they're not doing these things and they are doing those things. And it begins to create almost this like caste system. And we know this, there are certain sins that if you commit those ones, you might get to keep your snuggie, but you're never going to get to climb back up. Not when you did that. And so you get to stay there. Some of us even do this to ourselves. We're like, I was moving along, but then I did this. And I know I'm probably back here for the rest of my life, but at least I made it in. At least I made it in. And what can begin to happen in this legalistic environment is we we come up with a system because we have to. We have to come up with a system that helps us to progress through, or we have to come up with a system where if we sin, if we mess up, if we fall short, and scripture tells us that everybody sins, right? And John says, hey, like, if you don't think you sin, like, you're just a liar, right? And, And so, like, we all sin, and we all fall short, and so we have to come up with this system that says, if I do fall short, if I do go back a few rungs, how do I get back up? Because I need to know how to get back to where I want to be. And then actually, some 
some of us, we develop this like mindset, and I would say this is like the heart of legalism, that we actually begin to believe this, that when we do sin or when we don't do enough good things, that actually what happens is the snuggie is lifted off and it's placed over here. And it's like hung up in such a way that we're now over here and where we are is we are now spiritually exposed. And we might have this like sense of our salvation because I did say the thing or I did the thing or some of us have grown up in environments where we think maybe I just lost my salvation and until I get back into the Snuggie, like I am exposed and, uh, uh, and, and, and I don't even know what would happen to me in eternity because, because the Snuggie has been lifted. Like Christ came off because I did this and I did that and now I've got to get back in because if I don't, I don't know what happens to me. And in that moment, then it's like we replace the Snuggie for a weight. And so we put on this spiritual weight now that we're lifting and we're holding it instead of being clothed in him. And so as that begins to happen, then what we do is we create this little formula in our head that says, okay, so, so there it is. Like there's forgiveness. There's the weight lifted. There's me getting back to where I was. So how can I now get from here to there? And, uh, and the first thing that typically happens, the first part of the formula is like a conviction. We go, okay, all right, all right. And, and so we feel convicted either because of our conscience, the Holy Spirit working through, or we read a passage of scripture and it convicts us, or we sit on a Sunday morning and it convicts us, and, uh, or, or we just know what the rules are. We know that we broke it, and so we feel a conviction. We're like, okay, so, so I'm convicted, all right, so at least I feel bad about it, so that's a step. And then there's still a gap, so Repentance. Okay, so, so now I'll practice repentance, and, 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 uh, and legalistic repentance typically looks like one of these three things. Uh, uh, the, the first is it's like a worldly sorrow. And so what we think to ourselves is if I feel bad enough, and if I look and go, gosh, I can't believe I screwed it up like that. I can't believe I lost my snuggie. I can't, I can't believe that I did that again. I can't believe that I keep getting caught up. And now look at the ramifications. I've made a mess of my life. This just feels bad. I don't like it. Like, God, I feel so bad. Don't you see how bad I feel? God, it's horrible. Oh, look, I made it back in. And it's almost like if we feel enough sorrow, we can get ourselves back in. We say that to God. God, I just want you to know I do feel bad. Or, or if that, it's not that one, some of us turn to a, a second tactic. And what it is, is it's works. And so we set our, our mind on it. Okay, I'm getting back in. All right, I'll go to church. I'll actually listen. I'll sing my song, uh, a song. Some of you, you're like, okay, I actually raised my hand, God. That's two steps. And you're like, I'm so close. So close. And by the way, some of us, we would laugh at the Catholic process of repentance and penance. But what this is, is just the Protestant version. If I do this and this and this and this, it'll be enough. And we're there and we're like, I'm so close. What are you? Okay, I'll be nice to that person I don't like. Okay. Wait, has gone. Man, that was a process. 
some of us, we feel like we ran so far from our faith or we strayed so much or we sinned so big that it was like a journey. It was weeks or it was months or it was years. And we just wore it and we kept doing it and, and it kept weighing us down and it kept weighing us down. And you're like, I just want to get back in and exchange the weight for the snuggie and feel forgiven again. And if works doesn't work, some of us use a different tactic. We use shame. I'm so ashamed, God. I'm so ashamed. I'm, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I crossed that line. I, and depending on what the sin is, like I can't believe it. And, and so what we do in our shame then, and oftentimes the way shame plays out is we either just keep our head down, right? And we're like, okay, like just don't look at me. Like please don't look at me because I know I'm snuggling this right now. I know I'm exposed right now and I know that I sinned. And, so, and, 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 and it's, it's so much shame. And, and sometimes what shame does is it actually forces us to leave. And so what we do is we just step out of the church because it's like, I know I really shouldn't be going there because I know what I'm doing. And so I'm going to step away and I'm not going to be a part anymore uh, and I'll hide my face and I won't lift my hands because that would make me a hypocrite because I know, I know what I did and I just, I need to feel, I need to feel the weight of it because if I don't feel the weight of it, then I probably don't feel ashamed enough. And if I just feel low enough, then maybe God will just like cloak the snuggie back over me. And if it gets really bad, we do all three. So we let the sorrow and the works and the shame all be this thing that moves us far enough along and the whole hope is just to be covered again. And I know that I just pitched all of this in the negative, but I think I could have probably come in here and pitched this entire process in the positive and called it spiritual growth and some of you would have nodded your heads and said, yep, that's how it works. That's how it works. And say, that's, that's discipleship. And you would have said, or I could have maybe gotten you to believe, and here's why grace is amazing. Grace is amazing because no matter how many times you sin and the snuggie is lifted, the reason grace is amazing is because every time you do this process, he will reclothe you. Every single time. Isn't it Amazing. And we could sing songs and say, this is amazing grace or uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, the saved a wretch like me, that even though I kept sinning and rejecting and rebelling and lifting it off, that every time I felt bad and every time I was convicted and every time I worked and every time I felt sorrow and every time I felt shame, I was able to get back to being covered again. Grace is amazing. But let me tell you what happens along the way in this legalistic process, that every time we walk through this process, the weight of it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. Or the more times we walk through this process and then watch other people walking through it or walk, watch other people not make it through it, we actually get prouder and prouder over here and look back at them and just say, they weren't able to make it. And what makes me a Christian, what makes me justified, what makes me right is I'm able to go through the process. And so we look at all those who can't and say, nah, if they really cared, if they really loved Jesus, they would have done what I would have done. Some of us have carried the weight of this process for years. I mean, just years. Maybe some of you your whole life. Some of us have seen it, the process play out in the church because then what it begins to happen is the way we treat each other 
the way we treat each other is that when we see somebody snuggulous, we go, oh, that's gross. That's gross. Or they feel a conviction that leads to a confession, and then when their conviction leads to a confession, our response is we crucify them for being in sin. And we look over here in our nice little snuggie that we earn back and go, I'm gonna start you all the way at the back, go through the whole process, and someday we might let you back in. And you have felt the weight of that. You've seen it play out. And you've wondered, I'm sure you have, is there a better way? Is there a better way than this process, than, than earning it, than all of that? And if, that's, if that is grace, if that's why grace is amazing, because if I go through it enough, I'll get clothed again. Like, is there a better way? Yeah. Let me tell it to you. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. And how did it appear? It appeared in the form and the person of Jesus Christ. And what happened when grace appeared is it completely changed the formula. It changed the formula from the very beginning because the process of how we received our salvation by grace and not by works that brought us in and clothed us in the first place is then the exact same process that matures us up all along through the process. And here's what's amazing about grace. It's not that... If you are now in Christ and then you sin and mess up and you lose the covering of Christ, what doesn't make grace amazing is that you can earn your way back in over and over and over and over again. What makes grace amazing is that on no effort or individual righteousness on your own, that when you stepped in and were covered in Christ, that even when you sin, the covering is never lifted. That's what makes grace amazing. It makes grace amazing that you step in and you go, oh my goodness, I know what's in me. I know what sin I committed. I know how I fell short. And God, every time I did, you didn't go anywhere. You kept me covered. I was never spiritually exposed. And I know some of you already, you're like, oh, but what about sin? What about sin? See, I told you at the beginning about the the wrong approach and the antinomianist approach, which is, oh, I've stepped into my Jesus nugget and now I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. And so your formula looks something like gospel, grace, I'm good. I'm covered. I can do what I want. No one can tell me. And, and, and uh, sometimes even well-meaning people will be like, oh, you sinned? Don't worry about it. No regrets. You're covered in grace. Don't feel bad. No, that's not it either. No, because look at the rest of the text. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All people, not just the ones who did good, not just the ones who live up to the standard, not just the ones who grew up in a certain environment, all people. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Doing what then? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What is Paul reminding Titus of? That when grace appears, what it does is it compels us to then live in godliness. 
And Hebrews reminds us that if we think we have gone through a process of being redeemed by Christ, and we think that we have stepped into our salvation, and we just deliberately go on sinning without caring at all, then uh, the writer of Hebrews is like, you should probably evaluate whether or not you actually stepped into your salvation. Like, if your sin doesn't bother you at all, if you can do whatever you want because you're covered by grace, like, it's okay, free for all, do what I want. Like, you should be concerned. One verse calls it the heavy hand of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of a living God. You say, but what about grace? Aren't, aren't grace and, and that, aren't those things competing? No, 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 not at all. No. See, what happens with grace then is we step in, but it changes the formula and it makes all of the difference in the world. See, remember in the first one, when you stepped in, you were covered in grace, right? Uh, and whether you felt like you fell down the rung or the, 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 the snuggie and the covering, the forgiveness was lifted and placed over and then you worked your way back in and you just carried the weight of your sin until you were recovered again and exchanged that for this, right? Uh, instead of that process, the gospel introduces an incredibly new process and here's what it is. You're covered in grace. Grace steps you in. It pushes you into your salvation. You're covered in Christ. And then what happens over here when we sin? What happens? Ah, the conviction, all of that stuff, it'll come, but it doesn't come first. Here's the beauty. When we step into grace, what happens first? When we sin, where should we start the equation? With grace again. The gospel is you're still covered in Christ. The heavenly father just sees you covered in Jesus. Do you see how this then begins to change the way that we interact and deal with each other when we hear of sin exposed? So someone comes to me and says, Stephen, I did this, or Stephen, I did that, or I'm caught up in this sin. Great. You know what I see? You are covered in Jesus. Let's start there. You're covered in Christ. And so the, the Christian, when they sin, it starts with just a reminder of the grace that they have been now covered in Jesus. And so I'm covered in Christ, and, and I don't lose my position. I don't lose my standing. I don't lose the covering. I'm not spiritually exposed anymore. I don't have to run back and confess and, and, uh, and create this worldly sorrow and shame to be right again. I'm still right, and I'm still covered. And with that then, like, is forgiveness because uh, we, we have this idea in this legalistic sense in the old equation that I've got to, like, earn the forgiveness again, that it'll be because of what I do that will get me back. And what we forget is that it's about what Christ already did. And so even if we fall short, like the lowest of the low, we're still covered in the grace and we are still forgiven. And you know what then? What's beautiful about this is that that weight of feeling, that weight of that, I'm not talking about the weight of practical consequence or of relational dysfunction. I'm talking about the weight of wondering, am I, am I condemned now? Am I okay with God? Does he still love me? That weight isn't lifted at the end of the equation when you've earned yourself back in. That weight is actually lifted right here. It's lifted. Whoo! Like, you, I just sinned, but I... But, I'm not going to carry the weight of my condemnation. I'm not. Why? Because I'm covered in Christ still. But what is this text teaching us? I'm covered in Christ. I am forgiven. But what does this grace compel now? It compels. Let me read it again. That I would be trained up to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, the, the, the beauty of grace is not that it gives me a license to sin. The beauty of grace is that it gives me an ability to not want to anymore. So I step in, and even when I fall short, even when I'm not doing everything I should, even when sin enters in, I'm covered by grace, I am forgiven. But then that grace, the true grace of Christ, what it does is that it just pushes me to want to be changed. And repentance does come into play here. And we might have to fix a couple of things that well-meaning people have said to us. See, repentance begins to, uh, it does still play in in the Christian life. And so sin enters in and we're covered by grace and we're covered by forgiveness and I am no longer condemned. I no longer have to live under the weight of the punishment of the law. That's what it means that there is no condemnation. But I want to grow up in Christ now. And so repentance uh, begins to, to flow out of grace. It's not a process to earn grace back. It flows out of that grace. And so godly repentance then begins to look like this. There is a sorrow, but it is a godly sorrow. It's a godly sorrow. We see this in David. Uh, we see this, I think, when Paul's like, I'm the, the chief of sinners, right? We, we see a godly sorrow. And what that is, is, is it's not a sorrow that's like, oh, man, look at the consequences of what I've just done. It's a sorrow that says, oh, God, like, I can't believe because I am clothed in Christ. I can't believe that I brought Christ then into that. I can't believe Christ. I, I can't believe I brought you into this because you're clothed in him. And so you bring him with you. And the godly sorrow is simply like, God, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't don't want to be ruled by my old master anymore. One writer said it, I don't want to be in love with my ex anymore. I'm I'm married in Christ now. I want to be only clothed in you. I want my whole heart to be yours, and I know that my sin is, is me f- being in love with the former. And so, there is a sorrow. And the sorrow then leads to what? Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Where it says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so it's now in here and this, this godly sorrow hits me and where it leads me is not despair. It leads me to say, God, help me to crucify this. Help it to never surface back up in me. Help me to never say that, do that, think that again. Holy, holy, holy. That's one part of this godly repentance. Another way that godly repentance might look is a different type of confession we see this in James chapter 5. It's a, it's a liberating type of confession. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Notice that this confession is not about so that you might be justified again before God. This type of confession is confess to one another so that you might be healed. And what that process means or what that's indicating is that that, that open conversation, that open confession with somebody else is actually one of the ways that God then just sets us free. And uh, we can see here that the community that has to be present in order for this to work, you have to be a church under grace, not under the law, because a church under the law, nobody will confess one to another because they know that if they do, it's going to lead to their crucifixion. Instead, in a community of grace, we know that when we confess one to another, we see that Jesus was already crucified for it, and so I can help you grow through it. 
completely different environment. And so sometimes there is confession. And it's just simply like you and somebody else. And it's not a confession that's like, ah, I just had to get that off my chest. No, it's a confession that's like, I know it was wrong. I know I brought Christ into that. And I know I'm not condemned, but I don't want to go back. And so can you pray for me? Can you pray for me? Can you pray that my heart would change? Can you pray that I could be holy, 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 like Christ is holy, holy, holy? Would you help me through it? And in the grace-filled environment, you look and say, absolutely. Why? Because all I see is you still covered in Christ. I only see the snuggie. I don't see what's underneath. I've shared this before. Those of you who are new, let me tell you this one. I just assume that all of you are real screwed up. I just operate off of that assumption. You telling me how doesn't change anything. I assume there's something going on in there that's you loving your old, your ex. So what happens then, this, is it begins this healing process, right? And it's not a punishment process, it's just a healing process. Another way, this begins to work out in godly repentance. In Hebrews, um, it's called fatherly discipline. Hebrews chapter 12. And sometimes in our grace-filled environments, we can look at um, incorrect grace-filled environments, antinomian-esque environments. We can say, oh, discipline. No, 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 discipline's not a thing anymore. That's Old Testament. That's the law. Discipline's the law. No. No, in Hebrews, it's very clear. Fatherly discipline is a good thing. Like you and I discipline our children. Sometimes God disciplines us, and it's not a discipline that is a punishment. It's a discipline that is the Father looking at you and saying, I love you so much. And you are ignoring every sign. Please, please, please let my grace break in and change you. And that discipline can look a hundred different ways. A hundred different ways. And sometimes well-meaning people will look at somebody who's working through this process and go, oh no, you don't have to feel bad. You're covered in grace. Now the verse says, you are not condemned. Condemned means you don't have to live under the weight of the punishment anymore. And you don't. But spiritual conviction is not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's what, it's what reminds us that the Holy Spirit is present. That he's there, that he's working inside of you. And so Holy Spirit, when he shows up and when he begins to convict that, that's the Heavenly Father saying, before we take this any further, let's, let's change this now. Why? Because I want you to be running around in your salvation completely covered in freedom. And sin, it's, it's just the weight, man. Let's get rid of it. And so in this process, I step in and I am covered and it's, it's amazing grace because I didn't deserve it. And it's amazing grace because no matter what I do, it's not going to be lifted. If I've been covered, I'm covered. And I'm in it now. And even when sin rears its ugly head, now God has this beautiful process of repentance that begins to crucify sin in me and begins to redeem me. And I begin to reflect Christ even more and even more. And in that whole time, I am never spiritually exposed. And when I'm in the proper place, the right place, I'm in a grace-filled place where people can even look in and go, I just see Jesus. Let's work through this, man. 
And as a church, we'll begin to see and know whether or not that we are a grace-filled environment or not. And the, one of the best ways we'll know is when people get caught up in sin, when things do happen, we'll see, do they run away in sorrow and shame? All right? Do they feel like they have to work their way back in? Or do we look and say, you're already covered in grace, but I want to walk with you as Christ crucifies that inside of you. But I'm going to walk alongside with you, not look back and say, why don't you catch up? And all of this is possible. Why? Because grace appeared. And how did it appear? It appeared in the form of Christ coming down to earth. And it appeared with him then being crucified for us. And we can see in the snuggy metaphor perfectly on the cross that what happened at the point of the cross is that Christ went to the cross. And what he did is he took our clothing upon himself and he wore all of our sin and shame. And in that moment then when he bore the weight and the penalty of that sin and shame uh, and his, upon his resurrection and then upon our salvation, he then clothes us in all of his righteousness because he died for all of our sin and shame back on the cross. And it's amazing, Grace, because it just hits us before we've ever done a thing to earn it or deserve it. I was, uh, when I was a freshman in college, I was um, in, my, in my dorm room. We had, uh, it was a great setup. We, we had a bathroom in between our two rooms and uh, housekeepers would come and they would clean our, clean our bathrooms and our dorm rooms every day. And so, uh, and so, you know, we're college freshman dudes, right? And so things would get pretty gross. And every, every once in a while, there would be a time where you'd like be in the room and the housekeeper would show up and you would uh, hear the housekeeper do something like, oh my goodness, this is disgusting. <laughs> and we would laugh, right? And, you know, that kind of thing. And, and she was right. I mean, it was, it was disgusting. And um, at some point in time, we kind of like got like mad because we thought the housekeepers like, you know, they're kind of, they're judging us, right? So we're like, let's get back at them. And so I had brought with me to my freshman year of college a life-size cutout of a historical figure. And it would just sit in my, my dorm room and people would come up and take pictures with it and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was fun. It was kind of like a little mascot of our dorm. And so what we began to do then is we would wait. We would know the, the, the rhythm and the schedule of the housekeepers. And so what we would do is we would take the, the cutout and we would put it strategically behind shower curtains and doors. Okay? And so then what we, we would do is we would sit there and we would wait for it. And all of a sudden you would hear a whoop! And we're like, we got her. Now, eventually, this kind of prompted some conversations. Um, and we began a kind of like a, a little bit of a relationship here with the housekeepers. And eventually, I don't know if it was just guilt or if it was the RA telling us what to do, but it was something. And we decided we should probably stop this mean trick. Or actually, we said, what if we just did something different with the trick? And so what we began to do is instead of just making the cutout appear uh, in the midst of the grossness, is uh, when we would uh, put the cutout in, we would go down to the closet first where the supplies were kept, and we would actually go in and we would begin to clean it up a little bit. We would clean the bathroom or we would clean the shower, right? And we would do that. And then we would stick the cutout in there. And so then what would begin to happen is uh, the, the housekeeper would go in there and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, would appear the cutout. And we would hear the, whoo! 
But we would see down when, when the housekeeper, when she looked down and saw and the woo happened, uh, what she knew then is that when the woo happened, that had already all been cleaned up. Like it wasn't gross, it was clean. And so she actually started to look forward to the woo and the surprise of it, the sudden appearance of it, because it was the reminder that what was dirty had been cleaned. See, grace appeared. And grace appeared and grace continues to appear in the church that Jesus came to plant. And grace appeared when we are under grace and not under the law. And so when sin shows up in our life, we don't go, woo, this is gross. When, when we're under grace and sin shows up or uh, somebody tells us, I've been caught in this sin, our response is not the condescending look of, that's gross. Our condescend, our, our response then is instead, woo! Somebody already came and cleaned it all up. It's already been cleaned. And like, I know, but, but I feel the weight of it. Okay, I get it. Let me walk with you so we don't make this mess again but it's already been cleaned up. Must be a woo church. When people show up, man, I just want grace appearing and popping up behind every door, behind every dirty thing. And we remember, he already cleaned it. He already cleaned it. That's a freedom. That's a freedom, and you know what's a freedom that wants you to do? To never make the mess again. See, the legalists in the first formula will say, this is how you deal with sin. No, this is how you create exhausted, tired, guilt-laden, judgmental environments. But the second formula, that's how you deal with sin. And that's how you create life-giving, Jesus is changing me type of environments. Let's be that. We're gonna end today taking communion. Would you pull it out? and open it up. Just pray with me. Father, we thank you that grace appeared. And Father, I pray that we would always be in an environment where grace is always appearing. We're covered in it. We're changed by it. We're united through it. And grace could only appear because your body was broken and your blood was shed, and now we are covered. So Father, we remember your body broken, or Jesus, we remember your body broken for us. Thank you. Go ahead and partake of the bread. Jesus, we hold this cup 
the cup that represented first the cup of wrath that was poured out on you instead of us. Oh, and the cup of our redemption. Your blood shed so ours would never be. Covered now in Christ. The payment of our sins. The appearance of grace. You may drink the juice. So, Father, here we stand as a people desirous to be rooted and clothed and operating by always in grace. So I pray for any person in here who is feeling the weight of sin right now. Lord, through the grace process, set them free from it. Father, I pray for anyone in here who is um, falling under the weight of legalism and trying to earn their salvation. Set them free this morning, for by grace you have been saved. And Father, I pray that we would be a body that whenever we are confronted with sin, that grace would appear. Grace would appear. Not because it downplays sin, but because it is the way for it to truly be crucified. So help us to be that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.